So we're going to do repeal and replace. Very complicated stuff. Tests, office visit, pills, hospitalizations. What do they all actually cost? $330 billion with a B. Monday marks the beginning of open enrollment in the health insurance marketplaces. This is confusing. You're listening to Health O'Clock, show 18. Recorded November 2017. We are your source for health trends, news, and insights. So now it's time to talk about healthcare. Why, hello, Andrea. Hello, Jay. So I can't even express how excited I am right now. We have a treat for you, the listener. It's fantastic. A treat for us. As well, yeah. It's just, it was. it's all around a, a treat. So, um, we had the opportunity to speak with a, a economics whiz, and uh, his name's Matt. He lives out in Arizona, and so we dialed him up on the, the interwebs, and we had an amazing conversation. Now, just a warning to our listeners, this interview went long, very long, and we don't want to cut it down because it's so fantastic, Um, but if you usually listen to our podcast on your commute or on your run, don't keep running for as long as this interview (laughs) is. (laughs) That might be a good idea. You know, we had Thanksgiving. (laughs) All right. Well, without further ado, let's just get into this interview. First off, I got to ask, is it okay that I call you Matt, or should I call you Professor? Only a few people have ever called me Professor, really, and it was never really in that in that setting, so Matt should do just fine, um, <laughs> although I'm, I'm not opposed. Awesome. Well, thank you uh, very much. We're here with Matt, and I know you work in economics and, and academia, and, and you're in Arizona. What, what exactly is going on? Yeah, so I've basically been living right by the ASU Tempe campus for like going on a decade off and on. I have, you know, the the university right there has 60,000 students a semester and 7,000 or 60,000 students on campus and 7,000 open slots for micro and macroeconomics per year or per semester. And so Kind of what started as a little bit of like extra hobby tutoring on the side has I've gotten I've built up enough demand now to where that's basically what I do is I uh, support ASU students like not as a part of the university but just as kind of uh, a hobby or a private tutor when when they're struggling in economics classes so sometimes sometimes it's a really hard class and a lot of times. It's required for every business major, so there are a lot of people who I can I can just tell by conversations they're going to be great at making strong business decisions. But economics is such a different. It's a it's almost a philosophy, isn't it? It because it, it's 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 the study of stuff and who it goes to, and so um, business is like is really trying to get as much of that stuff in terms of profit that you can and so a good 
business decision may not technically maximize profit in economic terms because maximizing profit in economic terms means you make every single penny possible. And so that means, you know, the theoretical, you know, supply and demand intersection is created by uh, a very abstract concept and something that doesn't totally play out in the real world but it does give us really good insight and guidance into what how economics works. So, you know, the the business major may not intuitively understand economics, but that's kind of where I come in is is helping them compare relate what they know to what they need to know because really especially now in my life after 4 years of tutoring the subject um economics is everywhere to me and I can't see much else in the world. It's kind of like that scene from The Matrix where he's looking <laughs> at a fall of, of text and you know all I see is supply and demand and aggregate output and real GDP and I, I end up having opinions, or not even opinions, but I come up with perspectives that I couldn't have imagined coming up with prior to essentially converting my brain to thinking like an economist at all times. I am so glad you are on our show right now. This is going to be... <laughs> this uh, is going to be a good conversation. This is going to be great. So let's jump right into it. The idea of health, big picture. I'm going to rephrase a little bit. I think the initial drive for people to participate in the healthcare system is this idea of good health. And so I want to know from your perspective, is that a major driver? Is there a disconnect between the idea of being in good health and this whole healthcare system? Very, very much so. Any, and anytime there's a lot of trouble with the field of economics to kind of sort through and give us good guidance, it comes from areas where there's a little bit of ambiguity. Obviously, how we tax and how we spend that money is we can create a lot of ambiguity. But even just with the idea of what is and is not good health creates a situation where it's very ambiguous and kind of up to people to determine. And then you introduce like the economic concept of in information asymmetry in that I'm going to go talk to an expert about my health and I don't know if that is expertise about me or not. And so as a gen from a general perspective, I, I do trust the guidance of doctors, but especially when you get into specific either, either elective surgeries or when I'm trying to weigh the benefits or costs of two different types of treatment plans, I'm really just guessing. Right. And... It's kind of, it almost comes down to, it, it becomes very similar to trying to decide between two used cars. <laughs> because and, someone knows more than you do. And yeah. no matter what, there are going to be drawbacks. Exactly. And, and they, they know more than you do. And they have different, slightly different incentives. Although the Hippocratic Oath definitely kind of contributes to at least my personal ability to to trust that maybe the reason why a specific medication wasn't suggested isn't just because of like a partnership or, or some sort of, of 
situation where there's economic incentives for them to prescribe a specific type of medication or something like that. Those things kind of exist in a less concrete way than a lot of people perceive them. So a, a few weeks back on one of the, the group chat podcast things that I work with, they were focused on the economics, the economic incentives provided by like a, a drug company for doctors. And so I grew up with um, Pfizer uh, pens all over my house. And the EpiPens? Well, like the, no, like uh, tchotchke pens. Oh, where they, like, like hand just you here's out. some free stuff. Exactly. Because my get our mom brand would always be getting them. Or my ah. sister would have the rep, the, she would say, the reps are coming for lunch today, so I don't need to worry about it. And they would cater a nice lunch. Or one of the incentives that's still within the legal loophole purview is to pay the rent. Um, so a, a company wow. can't pay directly, but they can offer you a building that they're renting as space to use for your practice at either a discounted rate or so they're not paying your rent specifically, but they're offering a non-monetary incentive. And, and that's where like, I think sometimes people want to throw, throw all the babies out with bathwater and it is probably like a misaligned incentive where we need to make sure that doctors aren't getting more pressure from people with money than than maybe the people who who need more honest feedback and things like that. But I also don't think it's as insane as as people when they kind of pontificate on the problems of the healthcare system. I don't think it's that crazy and I that might just be because I grew up with both my mom and sister <laughs> in the healthcare industry and so like my neither one of them were more likely to recommend something because they got catered lunch that day it was a partnership with my sister and mom they both do uh so not, like my mom does did mammography and my mom did uh my sister does ultrasound and so they can actually the companies can rent the machines for them and that's a huge that's huge, a huge like, expense. Major cost yeah. off their off their load, but at- and I'm so, I've seen statistics saying both that doctors don't believe they're influenced by these sort of things, but then also uh, statistics that say they are. So yeah. I mean, do you to what extent does someone bringing you lunch or or offering you a cheaper rent somewhere to what extent does that influence which drug you prescribe or how often you use this big fancy machine yeah it it matters what industry it is i think maybe uh, ultrasound is probably one where the I, i don't know how you can you know hurt your patient through a partnership in, in ultrasound where a company is providing the machines for you so that you go with those machines. To me, it's maybe not too much different than if you're uh, a distributor of something, so you're constantly driving around town and one of the major auto auto companies gives you a, a discount on, on your car fleet in order to basically all... Around here, we have a, a the Hensley Distributors, which is like Budweiser and Bud Light. And if Ford decided to give them 
a discounted rate for a hundred vans to drive their their shipments around. Personally, like I don't necessarily understand how how that automatically creates a negative incentive. Um, it just alters the existing incentives that we've got. Whereas with like a a, a competitive drug that just came off of their monopoly protection so they're now just facing like a generic um, competitor them having a partnership might actually just like if your doctor is prescribing name brand and you're not kind of taking the time to make sure that that's exactly your best option then that's where that information asymmetry can come into play because truly it's it's plausible for consumers to figure out whether or not that is or isn't a good decision. I don't know if, have you guys ever heard of uh, the website truecostofhealthcare.net? No. I, I've been to it before, yeah. It's, it's basically a doctor specifically talking about how our lack of ability to see menus, when it comes right down to it, a lack of menus related to healthcare is part of, a large part of the problem. And so he's kind of talked about, uh, he's got a, a bunch of good kind of lectures on YouTube and then some good like blog entries. But the one that kind of has always stuck with me and embodied that site to me is talking about how his doctor prescribed him a name brand drug. And instead of filling the name brand prescription, he went to Costco and got a year's supply of the generic for $30. Oh my and goodness. filling filling the name brand would have cost him uh, multiple hundreds of dollars, and so he was basically just talking about the fact that you were you were given when you went to the restaurant, they brought you uh, the surf and turf plate, and in healthcare, you may not realize that you could say no. I'd like to see your dollar menu instead. Exactly. Obviously, money is a huge incentive here. And I'm I'm gonna kind of go off script here. Um, I know it, it seems whether you're a drug manufacturer in a hospital, somebody somewhere is saying we don't have the money, we need money. That's why we have these crazy prices. So I want to know, in your opinion, who like where do you think the money is, and and, and where's <laughs> the cycle? Is it everywhere? Is everybody really as broke as they say they are? This is where I seem to uh, lose some of my peers when it comes to my perspective, and that is I, I think that there are very few instances where having monopoly power is a good thing. Um, but when it comes to innovating, uh, for example, to just take the common, way too commonly abstract example of like the, the cure for cancer. Um, the incentive to cure cancer as much as so many human beings want to fix a problem that they see personally in their lives, the incentive to actually come up with that medical cure is financial. And so, for example, I take Prilosec every single day, um, but it's the generic now. And the reason why Prilosec was researched and developed was because for seven years when that first came out, I didn't have a generic option to take. And so I was subjected to monopoly prices where they were higher. And essentially that seven year period of monopoly pricing is where 
we've kind of set up the incentive for those companies to recoup their losses on research and development. Here's another question, though, kind of along the same lines. Wouldn't some of these drug companies have a higher incentive to not come up with a cure, but to come up with a treatment? So in other words, like not wiping something out entirely, but just managing symptoms. That's very true. And I think that's where I think maybe in our general public mind, we might apply the Hippocratic Oath to drug companies. Do you think it does apply? Personally, like personally, I think maybe that's where I think a little bit too much like an economist, because I I don't know that there are very many circumstances where there's an actual strong economic incentive to do that. But I wouldn't deny that companies do it. And I think that like Martin Shkreli was one of the decent examples of that. um, Where We talked about him on one of ours. And that was just fascinating for me from an economic perspective because theoretically that was the argument he was making is that this is a a 50-year-old treatment. And if we are going to have a better treatment come about, we're going to do it through higher prices. And like it kind of deviates from what I was talking about where you you earn the monopoly profit for seven years after you develop it. And he was essentially trying to use the previous drug as leverage theoretically to benefit people down the road. And that's where I think uh, the biggest part of that failure was nobody believed for a second that that exorbitant (laughs) profit margin was going to go towards... uh, Uh, coming up with a brand new treatment for a really, really small portion of the population. So was his argument, hey, if I can make a profit, maybe other drug makers will will get into this particular uh, rare disease that that they were treating? Is is that what he said? I don't know that that was specifically the argument he was trying to make, but economically that would be the signal that it would send to the market. That would tell the competitors to come up with a way and to undercut that that price margin. Um, but And that kind of becomes a little bit more ambiguous just because healthcare and pharmaceuticals are a little different than what happens if Martin Shkreli owned a burger joint and started charging $35 for a basic hamburger. Um, because you can just instantly undercut his pricing the next day. Whereas like developing a drug, if he owns the patent on a drug, that's potentially part of the problem. And that might be, like with that specific drug, it might just be a matter of making sure that we have decided deliberately that this is how long you get, you get extended profits. And if you can't recover your R&D money in that period of, of time while you're a monopolist on that drug, then it economically speaking, it would say it's not worth it for you to cure that disease, for example. But I, I definitely, I do think there's there's just a lot more money in treatment. But I don't know that healthcare companies or, or uh, pharmaceutical companies really have to work that hard to um, make sure that they're treating people as opposed to curing people. If you look at the just general health of people in the country... Um, we give them business through our, through our habits. Like, uh, the, the cheeseburgers that I keep mentioning are definitely They're not driving open. demand. No, yeah. not at all. Well, and I do want to go back to something you said about pharmaceutical companies and the Hippocratic Oath. 
Um, not necessarily. I, I mean, pharmaceutical companies want their product to work. But I've always seen it as their golden goose is someone with a chronic disease that's a large subsection of the population. Mm-hmm. That's their ideal drug that they're making is a drug that appeals to that huge subsection of the population where the disease is simply managed. So when looking at how they plan this and how they price it, do you think there's someone in the back saying, now, now we need to do what's best for these people as well? Or do you think that's even a conversation that happens? I think that that actually probably takes place a little bit more often than we might presume. Um, But I also don't think that that is a dominant part of those conversations. So I think that especially after Martin Shkreli, I think that a lot of your pharmaceutical companies are going to be a lot more aware of the social impact of of their decision-making because of their uh, reputation more than anything. Yeah. And so I think that all along the way through the decision-making process, there is a level of consideration for the impact on people as a whole or society as a whole. And when it comes to the final decision, that comes down to the bottom line. Yeah. And so that's where I think there's some deviation, but I just, it it's... And I, I was explaining this to someone earlier today. I, I think that I'm always trying to find out how it was more likely something that we did that was stupid rather than malice. You know, don't attribute to malice what could be easier attributed to stupidity. <laughs> I, I would agree that, with that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think that I and and I like I said, I was so fascinated by Martin Shkreli because my initial human reaction was totally different than my initial economic reaction. Because when I first saw it, my thought process was basically that if, if what you're saying is true, then that's exactly how it should play out. It just came down to over time, spending $2 million on a Wu-Tang record kind of told me that that money wasn't going into development for <laughs> for new drugs. Well, and from a, a healthcare industry perspective, I looked at that and said, yes, the public doesn't like that. Yes, it seems like the wrong thing to do, wrong in quotes, but there's nothing illegal about what he did. Yeah, and sometimes when stuff like that happens, what I, I try to kind of, illustrate to people is like if it should be then don't have the conversation that what he did was wrong have the conversation of of what what could we do that would be smarter how would we be better in the future um because i think a lot of times like that was the ultimate takeaway on our our other little show that's kind of crass and and just banter back and forth (laughs) where people share opinions and and conspiracy theories but it was basically that he's a bad guy and let's hate him and then when we're done hating him we're fine but that doesn't fix the problem exactly and so it it is almost where we are distracting ourselves in a lot of cases from building a better system because the conversation for a better system is is harder than 
finding out who the bad guys are and shaming them. Right. Yeah, that's that's really interesting because I'm always looking for, okay, how can we fix this? How can we make this better? And in the case of Martin Scarelli, I mean, you could have limits on drug pricing, but then you stifle innovation. So, so where's the... Is there a solution there? Yeah, I... The, to me, the solution is a conscientious consumer. Um, public pressure, uh, public awareness, anything where the public understands better what to, what to expect. If you kind of think of that, that impression of the used car salesman stereotype, that stereotype, it being kind of pervasive in society, is why generally we're a little better as consumers at avoiding purchasing lemon cars or why we might have a policy in place within our state to like have a a lemon law and it's just because of the level of awareness in the general public is close enough to what's going on in the reality of the situation interesting that gets difficult with healthcare, though again because the the drug that Scarelli jacked up was uh, for a rare disease, and if yeah. it hadn't gotten media coverage and the outrage that it got, he I mean what he did was perfectly legal and it only affected a few people. And and that kind of it on a regular uh, like at the microeconomics basic level that I cover regularly, the demand curve for that drug. Uh, would look up very similar to the demand curve for insulin. And so it's just going to be a vertical line at the quantity that we need. And so uh-huh. if you jack the price up, we have to absorb the price in order to get the quantity that we need. So the way I kind of like explain an inelastic demand is that we can't change our quantity no matter how much the price changes. So if the price of insulin doubles, a lot of people will cancel their Netflix accounts. For example, ah. um, and I think maybe like a lot of, especially those type of drugs, are going to be facing an inelastic demand curve that's just vertical at the quantity that we have to have, and so that's where you 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 will distort the market if you had a price control, um, and so you would you'd stifle some of that innovation. You'd create effects that may or may not have to be dealt with down the road anyway so you kind of would be trading one problem for another potentially but it would be worth examining just as a general public what happens what what should we do to things that are critical to being alive when we we have no choice but to face the prices as they are in the market um, because if we're talking about a hamburger, when the, if I don't think a hamburger is worth $8, I just choose not to buy it. Mm-hmm. But if I don't think insulin is worth so much a shot, I don't get the luxury of that choice. Sure. Well, that's an interesting point you bring up, that as healthcare costs continue to go up, it's going to spill over into other aspects of the economy. And I, I think we've seen that a little bit 
as far as the the price of health insurance and and costs continue to grow i think we're one sixth of the economy at this point so do you think there has already been a spillover effect and and with baby boomers aging and and costs continuing to go up do you think that's going to get worse there's, there definitely seems to be a lot of, of spillovers outside of healthcare. Just as far as like the 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 inflation of prices and in the healthcare industry is kind of driving a lot of need for for people to to make more money, but that isn't always met with the same flexibility in terms of like negotiating your wages. And so what we're seeing in, from a society perspective is much more often the, the, the three jobs, um, the putting off preventative health care until it's absolutely uh, necessary. And that's where we kind of create our own problem with our own behavioral economics is that we don't want to spend $200 at the doctor and two years down the road, we absolutely have to spend $10,000 at the doctor because of some emergency issue. Mm-hmm. And so, like, I always kind of try to explain it in terms of to keep healthcare costs low, we need the cheapest possible surgeries, and the cheapest surgery that I can get is not needing one. That's exactly right. <laughs> well, and they made that argument when they passed the Affordable Healthcare Act, the Affordable Care Act in 2010, if we offer all these preventive services with no cost sharing, you can go and get your cancer screenings, all of these free checkups and, and so forth, it's going to cost you up front, but it's going to save money down the line. And, and that, that is, that's the idea of, like, I think the, the spirit of the Affordable Care Act was definitely aimed at increasing access to preventative care. I think, like, really the bill wasn't quite as bloated, even in my opinion, as it could be. A lot of people have cited it as 2,000 pages, but the bill as passed was like 976. And if you're talking about a health care policy, I, I really don't want like a three-page outline no. from a student that, that made it the night before. Um but that's kind of what we've got to we've got to shift over a really long run period of time, and we don't have the luxury of waiting for positive results. I think and psychologically, the American people don't want to spend money without return yet. Right. Well, and we actuaries had difficulty with that because we you have to price in the additional cost of covering preventive care. But you don't want to price in the potential savings without any clear data on what this what's actually going to happen going forward. Yeah, and and you need how many times would and this is I'm guilty of this. Uh, every I I I struggle with uh, uh, smoking cigarettes. Every time I see a doctor, I'm talking about my plan to quit smoking. Uh, when I leave the doctor's office, I'm lighting a cigarette. <laughs> so it, it, even with the best message on one side of the spectrum, it still is kind of on the public at large to take that advice, to enact those changes, to create new, better habits. 
and so that's kind of where I come to a lot of times when it comes to like if if my op- opinion matters, it's just that like I'm patient. I'm patient in this arena, and I'm not uh, naive. I don't want to throw money at money, uh, good money after bad, but I also know that any kind of shift like this is really going to show up in my niece and nephew's generation where they are going to the doctor at the best time to make sure that, because really what uh, the economic impact of, of such, being in such poor health is that we're missing work more often or we're less productive or you know people who face a lot of, of healthcare concerns aren't able to pursue other goals. So, um, you know, if you're, if you're dealing with a major healthcare issue and you have a great business idea that's going to improve the lives of everyone in your community, that may not happen. Um, now, is it okay if I ask, what's the effects of advertising a drug versus, uh, I, I don't know, anything else? I think we saw, we were at the gym before this, and we saw a drug advertised for people with diabetes where they're approaching people and telling them their risk of death from a heart condition if they had diabetes. And, like, frightening these people and then peddling this drug for diabetes that also helped with heart conditions. Mm. (laughs) So, that... Yeah... I think that when I watch a, a drug advertisement, I have the same response as a lot of other humans, my human response. Um, my economist response is is almost, you know how sometimes like people will say like, oh, that's just teenagers. Uh, that's kind of how I feel when it comes to those those weird drug ads. And so usually those are going to you're you're not going to see advertisements for a drug that has a generic competitor. You're going to see advertisements right when the drug hits the market and the idea is to take those 7 years of monopoly power and maximize the total return on it. And so the way that companies are aiming to do that is by getting as many people on board when the product is new so that they can sell as as much over the course of that 7 years to kind of recoup the R&D costs and and make their make their profit. Do you think they convince people that don't actually have the condition that they might have it? I think yeah, I I uh <laughs> I have a really good friend who is like a a true hypochondriac. Like um he's he's got OCD and and it's not even like, oh, haha, I'm kind of a hypochondriac. Like, if he gets a tickle in his throat, he'll Google, you know, and he'll have cancer. And oh, no. he'll, like, he'll tell his family, like, I'm, you know, it's been nice knowing you. Oh, um, my gosh. And I, I think that that's like definitely the extreme example. I think it, it certainly, certainly happens. Um, I do think over time there's a higher and higher level of desensitization to that. So, like, obviously he's going to have a lot of a lot of reaction to a weird drug that seems to relate to stuff he's feeling. But it, 
I, I just, I kind of feel like maybe my response is very common when I'm, especially if you think about when those advertisements roll, I'm watching uh, maybe a football game and they're trying to tell me about Lipitor. And that's not exactly when I'm really thinking about what cholesterol medication is right for me. Not your demographic. As you're yeah. chowing down on chicken wings and nachos watching the game. Yeah, I'd like to see a pharmaceutical company take the Old Spice approach to advertisement and make <laughs> without Terrell or without. <laughs> there was one Terry Crews. Yeah, Terry Crews. Oh gosh, <laughs> no, there was one with like a garden hose, and it it was for like um, well, what's it called when you're not able to like no. go like a stop and go stream? Oh, oh, and okay. they they were using like a garden hose, and it was all kinked up somewhere, and so the stream was really weak. Oh. Uh, that that was kind of goofy, but yeah. Yeah, it creates almost like the the same feeling that you get when like you're watching a movie with family and there's like a sex scene or something where everyone just feels awkward about <laughs> having this be forced on them while they're trying to watch a football game. I know. I hate those male enhancement stuff. They're everywhere. I can't escape it. I did like the sad little gray circle on uh, it was like an antidepressant ad. And it was a sad little circle who had social anxiety, and see, so I don't know. That... I connected with that. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Not that I have I've... social anxiety, but it was it was sweet. <laughs> I've seen them done done better, um, and like just growing up in high school, my friends and I, we would have like regular jokes related to mocking some of the like. We, we would always talk about how the advertisements related to like a, a genital herpes medication would paint a very positive picture of that person's life. And they're just, <laughs> they almost say it like they're excited about it. And, you know, there's just not, there's a disconnect from reality. And like, but I don't know that for at least the way I see pharmaceutical advertisement, I don't know that it's any more or less effective than advertisement in a lot of other industries. I don't I, I honestly think that the Bud Light advertisements are as as uh, useless to most of the public. But that's where your monopoly power comes in and converting every single potential person who might have diabetes and a, and a heart condition to to switch over from whatever they're doing that manage like two separate medications to manage them and trying to get them converted to your medication. It, it's aimed at making as much profit as possible within those, those, those first seven years. That's an interesting parallel because it's, I mean, a beer commercial, you're like, oh, that looks great. I think I would enjoy myself if I had that. It's kind of the same emotions and and thought process that goes into making both advertisements. Well, and I'm going to pipe up a little bit because I, I do work in advertising that like, even if it is something that is uh, like a Bud Light or something and they advertise everywhere and they're so watered down, you don't even pay attention that they're there. It's one of those situations where if you own this company and they don't advertise 
the t- the scale's going to tip. So it's almost a necessary evil to have this huge budget uh, and and to own the market rather than I mean it kind of comes with the territory and the highly competitive uh, fields and and businesses. It, yeah, it's like evidence that they're trying to grow, especially as a shareholder. I might have. I, I'm never going to respond to a Bud Light commercial, but if I'm a shareholder and I watch one on TV, I'm going to say that's good that they're trying to grow my my you know val- the value of my shares. Exactly. Well, and I think we have time for one more topic. Okay. Oh, one more. I had a couple, but <laughs> I'll narrow it down. Uh, let's talk about new technologies and innovations. Uh, I see in other industries, when new technologies come out, the old technology becomes cheaper. As innovation occurs, things are more efficient. And that doesn't seem to happen so much in healthcare. For In other industries, I'm thinking about like televisions, for example. As the latest and greatest comes out, the old models become cheaper. Overall, the technology becomes cheaper. It becomes more efficient. But in healthcare, these big, say, like MRI machines, you you have them and they cost and they continue to cost going forward. And when you buy into this new technology, it doesn't make healthcare cheaper. It makes it more expensive. Yeah. um, There's a, for, I think there's a couple of reasons that kind of help explain, especially if you compare an MRI machine to a TV, um, there, there is a concept called durable goods. And so that would be like your refrigerator or your car. And I think that an MRI machine falls into that category. A TV would as like maybe less durable in a category. Um, but if you're going to buy the machine every 10 years, then the focus is on maintaining the market share, making sure that when you come back to get another machine, you're getting the same machine. And I think that the it's kind of built its own little insulated incentive system where uh, rapid or drastic change or innovation in, in an MRI machine industry wouldn't be adopted fast enough to be profitable. And so... They'll work on things like reliability. They'll try to improve the size or the portability of the machine. But really, they're not trying to lower costs in the same way that that you could buy the old TV for cheaper or the new TV for more expensive. Um, and so, like, it's it's the durability of a lot of those those machines, um, and that's where like. I think that our opportunity with technology and innovation in healthcare isn't necessarily so much in the machines, it's in the system. And that mm. it, it requires the human element. But one of the one of the arguments that I'll kind of make when, when people try to pin me down politically is <laughs> I think we can have twice as good of systems for half the cost. And and so maybe it, I Maybe twice as good is an exaggeration. Maybe half the cost is an, an exaggeration. But I think generally uh, we can work smarter, and currently we're working harder. 
And so like the, the innovation that I want to see within healthcare is the Elon Musk of healthcare who says, and there's a, there's a hospital in Oklahoma and I'm sure some others have followed suit, but I keep giving this one credit, but they post on their website, a menu of prices for literally everything. And Mm. it, it just has such a, a significant effect and I think when you when you see uh, health tourism, people traveling to Mexico for a basic surgery because they know it's cheaper there, it's not even that they like they do know it's cheaper there, but they can kind of like plan the cost of that trip. Or one of the examples that I saw done with a, an actual research paper was tracking someone who got a quote for uh, I think it was a hip replacement in the United States and then got a quote for the same procedure in Spain. And the difference in cost for them was such that they ended up moving to essentially going to Spain for three months to get the surgery and fully recover and take a a kind of odd vacation. Um, And the cost was the same. And it's not even so much that I begrudge the difference in cost I begrudge the fact that when I, if I make a healthcare decision, especially things that can be planned, because going to an emergency room, you're you're almost beholden to the prices that are there. It, I, I kind of look at the emergency room just like bail. Um, if 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 you don't want to pay too much to the bail bondsman, you you need to avoid the reason why you got there. Um, And the emergency room, it's like I I had to go about a year ago because I was looking at my phone and uh, walked through a a, a patio door that was not open and it was clean enough to look open. Was that glass or was it uh, the netting? Oh, it was all glass. Oh, no. I just had a, a sheet of of glass that was in a house that was built in like the 40s so it was not you know good advanced glass luckily like my forehead broke it but bounced luckily back (laughs) so like like the the bounce back is kind of i think what kept my face and head out of the line of fire so basically a bunch of glass just fell on my hands and legs and stuff um but i had to go to to the emergency room for that and you know, it might bother me to know that an emergency room five miles further could have done it for $500 cheaper. Yeah. Um, but that is, it's not the lowest hanging fruit. And to me, it's not the battle I would want to pick. Um, but when it comes to things that we would plan in advance, even especially including like having a child, um, if parents are able to shop around for the 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 best you know obviously not in the third trimester kind of thing um but like make make longer term plans about making sure that they're uh minimizing costs when they when they have a child it's not necessarily like that one person benefits everybody immediately but in the aggregate over time you know maybe 10 years down the road we all shop for that procedure the same way we would for a new television and we're finding the one that does that has the best features for what we're looking for and the right cost and in a location that's accessible to us 
Okay, I I know I said one more question, but I have one more <laughs> because I'm just enjoying this conversation so much. Oh, yeah. um, okay, so let's say, and economically speaking, I maybe I, I'm going to pose this to both Andrea and you. You are far more advanced in in this type of thinking than I. Uh, but isn't there a point where our pursuit and technology and medical advancement and and paying the high insane R&D price uh, eventually going to work against us and work against the well-being of man that the pursuit of the dollar trumps the overall per, uh, advancement of, of being a human. Oh yeah. Um, <laughs> yes. And yes. And no. Like uh, one of my favorite sayings is if you want four op- uh, opinions, put three economists in a room. Uh, because it so like the the way that we avoid that is like i said through through just a public not even so much smarter but to where the public is more prepared for these transactions than they currently are um but i i just generally i think that i can give you a perfect example of of that working out um and being the case and that is that uh, I've, I, I saw a billboard, uh, it's been a couple years now, at a mall for prescription eyelashes. What? <laughs> I, Medical I grade beauty? Into it. Yeah, or if you just, and that, that really compares well to... you've lost your eyelashes. Well to, yeah, all the, all the ED treatments that we see out there. Um, that's where the economics of the system are, are really incentivizing something that, you know... Someone absolutely has got to be buying all of this stuff or we wouldn't be faced with these products in the market and we wouldn't be constantly seeing those advertisements. So uh, how many people would be buying these not actually needing them? Like the men there that think, oh, well, it couldn't hurt. Might as well give it a shot and have no need for this. Or would a doctor be able to pump the brakes on this? Um. It, it really just depends on the person. And that's where, like, sometimes, like, I think any doctor who wants to make more money through shady prescribing has that ability to do it. Um, but on the flip side of that, I think, like, I could have robbed a bank any day of my life. Like, the reason I don't do it is because, you know, there's there's some common decency. There's the fear of getting caught. But I just think that, in general, I wouldn't want to try to craft a system that makes it idiot-proof to where instead of having to trust your doctor, it's forced upon them to where they have... Like, it just seems like you, you end up creating a really long chain of rules that you have to make to idiot-proof the world as opposed to... The, the doctor who's constantly trying to over-prescribe, um, and in the short run, they may end up having a major negative cost on lives and impact on, on people's well-being. But in the long run, that doctor won't continue to practice. At, at least that's how I'd like to look at it economically, is that if we're paying enough attention as consumers 
we run the bad businesses out of the market. And like I keep using analogies to relate it. Um, people have noticed that Applebee's uh, tends to microwave foods. And so people <laughs> what? have stopped, <laughs> stopped shopping oh, no. uh, at Applebee's as much. And Applebee's has kind of taken note of that and responded by trying to, to sell a product that people actually want to buy instead. And like a negative Yelp review isn't going to change Applebee's overnight. Just like a, a single complaint about a doctor who's maybe overprescribing opioids might not change things overnight. The difference is that we can wait for Applebee's to adjust or we can let them go out of business. Whereas a doctor, every for for all of the time that they are doing that that shady behavior, they're they're having a negative impact on human beings, and that's kind of where it's yeah, it's a lot more unethical. To, yeah, we have to come at it smarter than we would with a, a market that hasn't got that impact, like hamburgers or whatever. Interesting. So, if I could sum up what I've heard from you today, it sounds like price transparency is a really big really big idea for i think so um maybe some kind of rating system for doctors that's Have you heard of zocdoc yes i've been on it actually and it, it's pretty good you do have to kind of wade through the reviews and figure out who's just a grump and who is actually had legitimate issues with the doctor but that's i guess that's true of everything well and to interrupt this summary a rating doctor seems like rating an apartment nobody would go out of their way to rate an average doctor nobody's gonna rate a good experience at an apartment it's when you have the troubles when you find you know, uh, termites or something in, in your apartment that suddenly, and then over time, all you see is negative reviews. So, yeah, I think there needs to be something more objective, like a, a measure of outcomes or, and patient satisfaction is only part of that. Part of it is, did you have a good experience? But the other part is, did this person heal you or help you manage your condition or, Etc. Etc. I think, and like, yeah, that I think overall the transparency factor of it, we may not have found the perfect way yet. But but if I know if I can, if I can look at a menu, I can tell you if I want a Big Mac or not. When you when you take a menu away, you introduce a layer of ambiguity. When you make the person who makes that Big Mac an expert on food, and I have no idea it in introduces more ambiguity and if and you have to I, ask you can't afford it <laughs> <laughs> exactly like i think i think we can improve the system with with more technology and sometimes worrying about a perfect system is getting in the way of taking the next step towards a toward progress i would agree with that yeah this has been absolutely amazing matt thank you for uh for sharing your thoughts and and taking the time and and having a conversation with us yeah thank you so much that was a it was a ton of fun i uh usually can't shut up about this stuff anyway so being able to talk to people who want to hear it is always always more exciting (laughs) well we'll definitely have you back on and i hope that's okay oh yeah absolutely anytime i i really enjoy it i i like 
I like listening when it's kind of outside of my field just to kind of... Healthcare is one of those things where I think it's just worth so much time and deliberative thought and extra energy and conversations rather than a two-sided opinion dichotomy that we see in a lot of other like issues in right. society. There are just no easy solutions to this. And I don't think there are any extremely partisan solutions that cover everything how about that what a conversation it was fascinating i want to talk to him again i feel like we didn't get to touch on so many things but it was a really good conversation i totally agree Uh, yeah we'll definitely have him back we do have a huge treat our very next show is gonna be the live show a live recording of a show (laughs) i don't think we're gonna live stream it but not yet (laughs) anyway uh get excited everybody thank you for listening uh always look us up on itunes rate us share us with everybody you know everybody um this is it's been a good podcast so far i i've really enjoyed our community but all right until next time everybody